All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your your steadfast love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you that it uh, abounds towards us uh, every day. We thank you for your your word of truth in which uh, we see who you are. We get uh, glimpses of your your character. We thank you that it's a living word, that it uh, can work within us, that it can mold and shape us. We thank you that you use your word to do that. Pray now that uh, you would be with us at this time, that we would um, learn from your word that we would uh, grow in our love for you and that, uh, that you would teach us much. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will be in the, the book of Jonah. So last week we probably went through the least known of the minor prophets in Obadiah, and this week it's probably the, the most known of the minor prophets. Jonah is, uh, it's one of those books that, and there's, there's two that I can think of in the Old Testament, it's one of those books that if you read the end first, it actually helps you as you go through the book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is like that. If you read the end of Ecclesiastes and you see what its main point is, and then you go back through and read it, it's actually quite helpful. Uh, and Jonah is like that as well. Um, if you read the end, it really helps you uh, as you focus through the book, and, and we'll do that uh, shortly. But just by way of uh, uh, introduction, first off, um, Jonah is a historical narrative which kind of sets it apart from the rest of the minor prophets. The the other minor prophets, it's really you have a a vision and then you have some historical narration along the way to kind of tie all those together. Uh, Jonah, we have basically just a straight narrative. Uh, We don't have much about the the message that he proclaimed. Uh, I assume that what we have within this narration is is really just a snippet. I don't think it's the the entire message, although although it could be. So it, it's a little bit different than the the other minor prophets in that it's a it's a narrative form. Uh, just another thing right off the bat, uh, it is a historical narrative. It is not allegory or parable. This is a historical account uh, of. Uh, Jonah. And, you know, we don't have to spend much time on that. Uh, Jesus basically says that it's a historical account when he refers to it, that he refers to it as a a real event. The event with the fish was not allegory or parable. It was a historical event that happened. So uh, starting from that, it um, you can work through it and it makes a lot more sense as a, as a straight narrative. Anyways, it's uh, it, has all the things that a straight straight up narrative would have, right? It city references. It's got uh, times and dates and other references where you can actually place it. So this this work is is unique in that sense, in that it is it's a narrative, and as a narrative, it's that's probably one of the reasons we're more familiar with it as one of the Old Testament minor prophets because it just it's just reads a little bit easier than some of the other some of the other works. Uh, on the onset, um, the main character of this narrative is is God. 
Um, and I base that on Jonah's words. So before we do a little bit of background, let's just turn to the, the end of the, the work. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. And then we'll, we'll explain a little bit from here. But the main character of this particular, the main person, the main focus of this is, is God. And God uses this narration, this tale of the life of Jonah, he uses it to direct glory to himself because all throughout this book, you see how God is at work. You see God's sovereign hand. You see God's mercy. You see God's grace. You see how God is long-suffering. You see God's uh, steadfast love. And it's all throughout the, the book. And, and Jonah knows this well. And Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I, tried, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from uh, one who relents concerning calamity. So Jonah tells us why he did what he did. That we don't need to speculate on why he he fled. He fled with a full understanding of the character of God. So throughout this narrative, we have Jonah as a, as a weak, sinful vessel that really kind of showcases in, in high definition these attributes of God, right? We see God at work. We see God performing miracles. And all the things that, that God does here showcase those particular attributes, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, his sovereignty over all things. And everywhere that Jonah goes, Jonah doesn't want to be part of it, but all the Gentiles he encounter basically come to know the Lord. Because uh, God is at work and God is showing Jonah those attributes. Because Jonah, Jonah knows them. He says he knows them, but Jonah, uh, his, his theology and his practical theology aren't, aren't lining up. He knows the character of God. He knows what God is like, but he doesn't want to partake in what God is doing. Uh, just by another way of, of just kind of setting up the book, as you read through the book, the word great is used numerous times. Um, Nineveh is called a great city. God brings about a great wind. The, the mariners are exceedingly frightened, which is actually just the same word for great. They're greatly frightened. There's a great storm. And after they realize who Jonah is, they greatly fear again. And then when they throw Jonah in the ocean, they greatly fear. Uh, God prepares a great fish. Uh, Nineveh is called a great city a number of times. Jonah is greatly displeased when the city repents. And then Jonah is greatly happy when God provides the shade and then at the end, God refers to it as the great city once again. And so that, that word is a reoccurring theme. And all these things that God talks about, they're great. And they're great in their, their, their magnitude or their expanse. Like the fish is great, but the fish did not fill the entire ocean. You know, the city is great, but there was a border around the city. And there's one other time that the word great is used. And it's in that verse that we read in chapter 4, where it talks about God's great 
steadfast love. And there's a different word used there. It's translated in our, in our English as great. But that means uh, abounding or abundant in quantity. So there is no limit to the greatness of God's steadfast love. We have all these things that are great, all these things that have a magnitude to them. But when it comes to God's steadfast love, it, was, it is without limit. It is abundant. It, it could fill the ocean, right? The ocean cannot contain it, right? Uh, I, I forget the, the lyrics to the song, but something along those lines that we cannot, they cannot be contained. So throughout it, we see that this, this highlighting of the character of God, of who God is, and all these things point to his, um, his complete sovereignty, his greatness in all of his attributes of, of who he is. And also by, by way of just kind of setting our, our thinking, uh, I wanted to read a, a passage from, from Exodus. And you'll, you'll be familiar with it once we start reading. This is Exodus chapter 33. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass by. And whoops, I skipped ahead there. No, I didn't. A goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name and the Lord, uh, my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So when Moses asked God to see his glory, God makes that statement that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we see that that glory of God played out in, in the book of Jonah because God does that. God exercises his steadfast love, his mercy, his compassion on the city of Nineveh. So first we, we start off, um, and we'll kind of read through it as, as we go. I don't think time will allow to, to read everything, but we'll hit some of the, the highlights because we're just doing a, an overview here. Starting in verse 1, we see the, the Sovereign's Commission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So there's God's commission. Uh, go, well, arise, go, and proclaim. Uh, very very similar to the, the Great Commission, right? Go preach. Uh, he is to arise and go. We know a little bit about Jonah. Uh, he is mentioned in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, he is from the northern kingdom. He is preaching. Most likely he has an overlap in his ministry with uh, Amos and Hosea. So he's preaching at that, that time. He is in the northern kingdom. So the kingdoms are divided at this point in time. And he basically, at one point in time, he preaches a message and that's recorded for us in Second Kings. Uh, he gives a prophecy about something that's going to happen and it, and it happens. And that's the Reference that the only other reference we have to, to Jonah in the Old Testament. Um, and we know in that second Kings passage that it's the same Jonah because he's referred to as the son of Amittai. So we know where he's from. We know basically he preached during the, the reign of Jeroboam II. 
Jeroboam II was king of northern, uh, the northern kingdom at that point in time. So his ministry was somewhere between 793 and 753. So there's a window of time that we know he was preaching uh, because that's when Jeroboam II was reigning in Israel. Jonah is, is most likely the author. It doesn't tell us who the author is. Uh, interesting thing about the, the approach to this narrative is it's, it's like third-person approach, so a lot of people don't really think that Jonah wrote it. Uh, the prayer that we read in chapter 2 from the belly of the fish is a first-person and so it, it seems likely that the way that this was written is that Jonah uh, wrote this after all the events had taken place and then was able to fill in, you know, as, as far as the narrative goes, he has, he has uh, you know, great firsthand details of everything that happens. He has the first-person account of being in the belly of the fish. And also the way that he closes it, he leaves it open-ended so that we don't really know what happens. And I think it's primarily because, again, the focus of this narration is who God is. So he leaves it at what God has to say and leaves us uh, pondering what he says about God or what God has to say about his own person. This, uh, this message is, it's actually for uh, Israel. It's written to Israel. This is not written to Nineveh. Uh, this is for the people of Israel or, or Judah. It's for them to, to read. And again, I think that's why the, the primary focus is, is on that, that, those attributes of God, his, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love of how much he, he cares for those that are his. And a little bit about Nineveh that will kind of help us to understand Jonah's perspective is uh, Nineveh is called a, a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, and never without victims. That's how Nahum uh, describes Nineveh. Uh, some 150 years after this, Nahum also brings a message to uh, Nineveh, and Nineveh is destroyed at that time. So Nineveh is destroyed roughly around uh, 612 B.C. Uh, basically, once again, for their, their violence. They, they have records of, there's historical records of different uh, kings, and the kings uh, gloried in their brutality and just the uh, horrific things that they had done to people. And I, I read much of that, but I don't see any profit in it, it to, to go through it. It's just, it's horrific. They were horrific, bloody people. And I think Nahum's assessment is, is sufficient that they, a uh, city of blood, full of lies, and how he ends it never without victims, right? They just had strings of victims after victims because they were just so brutal uh, people that gloried in their, their violence and their destruction. Jonah is, a, is fully aware of the, the character of God, that God is merciful and gracious and steadfast in love. And this is why he does not want to go to preach the message to, to Nineveh. At the time that this message was uh, being preached, 
It is believed that uh, Asherdan III is the king of Nineveh. Now, there's a little bit of confusion between where the capital was. The capital seems to have been provisionally at times in Nineveh, but then there was a capital in Babylon as well. Um, when it refers to the, the city of Nineveh, the, I think there's times where it's, it's doing kind of a collective approach. So it would be the really the city proper and then all the kind of the suburbs around it because it's a hugely populated area. Uh, they estimate that there was somewhere around 300,000 to 600,000 people that were within the, within the city. The main, the main fortress of the city uh, had walls that were 100 feet tall and they were 50 feet wide and they could ride three chariots uh, abreast along the top of their fortification. And then the outer perimeter wall had a circumference of roughly eight miles. And you know this is why they call it a great city. It, it was a huge walled city. Uh, most likely it was, it was along the, the Tigris River and very close to modern Mosul in Iraq. It's right near where uh, Mosul is currently in, in Iraq. So that's a general idea of where it was. So with that as some background, it gives us a little insight into, into why Jonah did not want this message to go to these people, because he was aware of the character of God, of what God would do, of how God is gracious and merciful. He did not want this mercy extended uh, to these brutal people. So we see God's, God's commission uh, pretty clear. He says where to go. And he says what the message is going to be. It's going to be a message of judgment. And Jonah does does arise, but he does not go as God has uh, directed him. So uh, in my notes, I, I call this seditious Jonah, right? He went against the direct command of God that was clear. And to get an idea of, of what he what he did here is... Where, you know, Samaria, he, he preached in the northern kingdom. So Samaria is kind of the, the benchmark as the, the capital of the northern kingdom. So from Samaria to Nineveh would be about 550 miles. Um, from Samaria to Tarshish is about 2,500 miles. So he went about as far away as he could. And he, he went over into really what at the time was a, a place where there was no... Um, really light from from Israel, right? Israel, there was people that, that obeyed God, right? Israel was a light. They went to different nations. There's nations that you can see when you read throughout the Old Testament that had a clear understanding of who God was. They knew some of the stories. They knew the accounts of miracles that God had done. But you get over into Tarshish, and that is like way over to where nobody has been. Uh, most likely this is a Phoenician ship because the Phoenicians would travel back and forth. So Jonah jumps on this this uh, boat. He pays the fare, and then he heads in the opposite direction. Basically, as that's as far as he could get. That was kind of the edge of the the known world at the time, all the way over as far as you can get in Tarshish. And that is in in verse three. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down 
in it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jonah actually explains to them that he is he is fleeing from the Lord. They they understand that that is what he is doing, but I don't think they fully understand the, the implications of that when he explains it to them. Uh, next, we really see the the sovereign correction. God corrects uh, Jonah's course. It's hard not to, to to read what God does here and to think of of what. Um, what is said in the book of Proverbs, where he says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke when the Lord, uh, the Lord loves, uh, whom the Lord loves, he just disciplines just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. So God is going to exercise this discipline on Jonah. He's going to sovereignly correct his course through a series of events. And just the amount of times that God's sovereignty in his sovereignty intervenes in the book of Jonah is, is really amazing. God is really driving home the point that he is the one that's in control. Um, and this is in uh, starts in verse four, where we see the, the sovereign correction. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up and the sailors became afraid. And every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. And we'll stop there for now. So there's a, there's a calamity on top of, you know, on the deck. There's a calamity because there's a storm that is hit. Uh, these are seasoned sailors, so they know a bad storm when one comes upon them as quickly as this has. And they're in uh, you know, a situation where they're doing everything they can humanly possible to navigate through this storm. And we see Jonah in his, his hardness. He's actually asleep. There's calamity above. And I, I think that so many of these juxtapositions happen in this book. And it's, I think it's for a purpose here, right? We see how hard Jonah is to their calamity. And then we see how different God deals with the sailors. Jonah's below the deck there in turmoil, and he's asleep. And they go get him. Uh, the captain comes down in verse 6. So the captain approaches him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. So they're, they're doing everything they can think of. Call on any God that you can think of. Let's just we'll cover all the bases. So, you know, they're pagan Phoenicians, they're calling their whole uh, regiment of gods that they can come up with, and Jonah's got one that they haven't tried yet, so they're going to do that. So they're doing everything they can in the midst of their calamity. And he says, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his May come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So this is the this uh, this casting of lots is somewhat the equivalent of like drawing straws or something like that. It it may have been done with like various stones, and if somebody picked a certain stone, um, then it would uh, indicate that they were the one. 
In Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And, and we see that here too, right? The, the Lord and His sovereignty has uh, pinpoint Jonah as the problem. And Jonah knows he's the problem too. He, he says that later on. He knows he's the problem. And now they know he's the problem because he has uh, disobeyed and uh, done his own thing. He is hard-hearted. He does not have compassion He does not want to see the Lord exercise compassion. Verse 8, And then they said to him, Tell us us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? Um, What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said that I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. So he's correct again about some of the attributes of God, that God is the creator of heaven. He assures them that God is the one that's in charge of the ocean, right? He created the sea. He's in charge of the ocean. Uh, It's an interesting thing here that he says he fears the Lord. Um, He's saying he fears the Lord. He's actually in the midst of directly disobeying God. But, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about that, and I think that's, something that we probably do, right? We say that we're followers of Christ, but our actions don't always line up with that when we say that. Uh, But he says that he fears God. He gives them a brief overview of who God is. He's the God of heaven, right? So he's the God of gods. He made the sea. He made the dry land. And for these individuals, I think that a God of the sea, the one that made the sea, is, is something that they have quite an interest at this point in time. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them so. So they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on Account of me, this great storm has come upon you. This is the, the first instance in this book where Jonah decides that death is better than what God is going to do. So he knows that the, the issue of him getting thrown in the sea, that that's probably certain death. Uh, the sailors realize that it's also death for him. Uh, later on, we'll look, there's a couple other times that he decides that he would prefer death rather than God exercise his attributes. Um, but this is the, the first instance in which Jonah has a preference for death rather than for God to act according to his steadfast love. And they, um, this is in verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So the, you get this picture, you get this picture and this narrative painted that the storm is increasing, it's getting worse and worse. Uh, they're doing everything they can in their human means to remove themselves from this situation. They have a certain degree of compassion towards Jonah that Jonah did not likewise have towards them and that they don't want to throw him overboard because they know what it means. 
Um, so they, all right, we're not going to throw you overboard, so we're going to try to row. And so they try to row because they don't want to throw them over, throw them overboard. But then they get, uh, they get to the point where that's not working. And then we get to, to verse 14. And then they called on the Lord and they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord. And uh, the word has changed here. You probably see that in your Bible, that they're not calling out to just various gods. They're calling out to the, the true God here. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they have this experience where they see firsthand the sovereignty of God. They see God's power. They see God's power on display. And they have an understanding that it is God that can remove them from this uh, terrible situation, their peril, their calamity. And they ask that God not hold the blood of Jonah against them. So they picked Jonah up, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Here's another miraculous miracle that God has performed. They were probably watching as he hit the water, and it might be the the moment that a portion of him hit the water that it stopped. I'm not sure how God orchestrated it, but you you, you get the picture that that might be how it happened, that as soon as a piece of him touched the water, that was it. It stopped. In verse 16, we see, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they see through God's work, through his sovereign hand, they see who God is. They get a glimpse of his power. Uh, They get a glimpse of his majesty. They have some information about who God is that was given to them by Jonah, and we have here what, what appears to be a, general, a genuine conversion. They have a true fear for God. They sacrifice to God, and they offer vows. So it seems like there's, there's some sort of uh, true belief that comes from these uh, sailors here. The next miraculous event we see here is that... Uh, God in his, his, his sovereignty in this section is uh, his sovereign salvation. I, I think really when you read through this, uh, the, the chapter divisions are man-made. I think really verse 17 goes with chapter 2 best. Uh, and that's kind of how I broke it up in my outline. Because uh, chapter or verse 17 really is the the backdrop for for where chapter 2 begins, but we see in verse 17, this is God's miraculous sovereign salvation. And the Lord pointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So this is God's miraculous salvation for Jonah. Uh, Jonah is is in the sea, Uh, We can read through in chapter 2, Jonah describes kind of what he was going through. He's he's drowning. He's uh, in peril. He's sinking down. He fears for his life. And at that point in time, Jonah says that he remembers. He remembers God and he cries out to God. And then God offers this miraculous salvation in sending this fish. So this fish 
you know, grabs him up and offers this miraculous salvation. And chapter two is really a, uh, it's a, it's a song of thanksgiving that we have from Jonah while he's in the belly of the whale. So Jonah experiences this. He suffers. He's in the depths. God in his mercy and grace and steadfast love towards Jonah rescues him from the depths uh, in a miraculous way. And Jonah prays from inside the fish. Um, uh, there's been, I don't know, probably volumes written on what this, this fish was. Uh, the text doesn't tell us anything other than that it's a fish. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that's it's a focus on uh, really one of the least important of the details, right? It's God miraculously delivers Jonah. Jonah repents. He understands. He recognizes who God is. He's going to change his ways, and that's what's more uh, more important within this passage. But we do have God's miraculous uh, rescuing of Jonah. And just to to, to highlight a few portions here, I'll read verse uh, one. And John, then Jonah prayed to God, uh, prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And then just skip down to uh, verse 7 through 10. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee, into thy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, or, yeah, forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And I like the, the last portion of that is he understands where his salvation came from, right? It came from God. He understands that salvation is from God because God in his glory shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and compassion on whom he will show compassion. And he compassionately rescued Jonah from the sea, right? It, Jonah was the one that said, throw me in. He was the one that wanted to do it. He didn't want part of what God was doing, but God showed mercy on Jonah and rescued him. Your translations might have something uh, different in verse 8. For those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. That that word there for faithfulness, is it's a word that I know that um, we've heard. It's hased. It's God's steadfast love. So he is saying that those that, that worship these idols, those that chase after idols, they have separated themselves and they have forsaken God's steadfast love. It's God's steadfast love that pulled him out from under the depths. And you can read the description. He gives a pretty uh, vivid description that he's he's tangled up in the weeds. He's sinking down. He's going to the 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 bottom of the the mountains you know he's 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 in grave peril he is in a difficult situation and he cries out to the lord and the lord in his mercy saves him so then we get to chapter 3 and in chapter 3 we have the the sovereign recommission which is um, basically the same as the first commission 
Now the Lord of the word came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah is once again giving this um, commission from the Lord. It's the same, go to Nineveh and to preach. And at this time, Jonah goes. He goes to proclaim a message in Nineveh. And again, Nineveh is like, he's probably, the fish probably drops him off, you know, on like, you know, Palestine or, or somewhere over there. And so he's got, you know, roughly a month's journey to get up to Nineveh. We see Jonah then proclaimed the message. Uh, He shouts out the message. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an uh, exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And that three days walk probably means uh, walking around the the perimeter and through the suburbs, suburbs and those areas, uh, because Jonah was supposed to get the message out to everybody. Then Jonah began to go through the city uh, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So his message that he is delivering, which, you know, based on the text, we assume it's the message that God has given him, because God says, I will give you the message, and this is the message that he is proclaiming. A message of impending uh, destruction, of doom. But the thing about any message that we read, any message of destruction or, or doom or impending judgment, it always has with it grace, right? God gives opportunity when he gives those messages for repentance, right? You can think Jesus gives many messages that are messages of, of judgment, but within those messages, there's always grace. There's always mercy because within it, there's the opportunity to repent, so even even in this even in you know a fire and brimstone type message, God is still full of mercy and full of grace and showing compassion towards his creation. So Jonah preaches, and then we have uh, really uh, from verse five to verse ten, I, I call this uh, the sovereign's glory. We see that God has brought this message to the people. God has used his word to transform them. And we have what is probably one of the greatest conversions, you know, mass revivals that we know of. Um, it's a huge portion of the population comes to believe. We see in verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let them call on God earnestly 
that each man turn from his wicked way and from his violence which he which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So there's the, the most uh, probably... Uh, largest revival that that we know of, that we have record of. Uh, We have a whole city that basically turns over um, their ways. They they repent. They call on God. They show true humility. And, you know, God who knows everything, he relents from the destruction that he's going to bring. So the, the actions of the city are genuine, right? or else God would not have stayed his destruction. So God exercises great, once again, mercy, grace, uh, compassion, uh, kindness towards this city. And we know from, from Paul's words in, in Romans, right? It's Paul says in the beginning of Romans, he says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is when God shows compassion and kindness that leads us to repentance, when he deals in a a kind way. So just as as Jonah said, uh, salvation is from the Lord. God, uh, in his compassion, saves this vile Gentile city. Um, It says from the greatest all the way up to the king is a conversion. Uh, in verse 4, we see Jonah's reaction to this. Uh, first, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. And, and Jonah is, uh, I have all S's, so this is sour Jonah. He's, he's sour about the whole thing. He doesn't, he doesn't like it. He doesn't want God's mercy to be extended to these people. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So Jonah was was fully aware of of what God was going to do, of how uh, loving and compassionate and merciful that God is. And I I was thinking of when I was reading through this, that you know a lot of times you hear people say that there's no love and compassion in the Old Testament that's all gloom and doom. It's they have not read Jonah, because this... This is a constant, uh, again, like in high definition, how God shows forth mercy, grace, and steadfast love. I mean, that's, that's, it's throughout the whole thing, God has shown mercy and grace and steadfast love. Jonah didn't go there because God, he knew that God was going to do that because he knew what God was like. That God was going to show this mercy. 
Uh, next, we have a, a, an exchange between uh, the Lord and Jonah. And Jonah um, is uh, displeased, but God still deals with Jonah according to his mercy and grace and loving kindness. So God deals with Jonah in a very gentle way. Therefore, now, oh, oh this is verse 3. Um, Therefore, O oh God, please take my life from me, for death is better than me for life. So Jonah sees what God has done, and this is the second time that Jonah has decided that it'd be better to, to die than to be part of what God is doing. Uh, the first time is when he says, just throw me overboard. And while he's in the midst of that, he cries out to God. He cries out for the mercy of God, and God grants it a mercy that he is not willing to have extended to others. So you just see how hard he is juxtaposed to how compassionate and caring that God is. It's easy to, to, to read through this and to realize that God is nothing like us, right? He is nothing like us. His compassion, his mercy is nothing like ours. It is abundant, it abounds. And the Lord said in verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? So God just deals with Jonah in a, it's a soft answer, right? He deals with him in a soft way, just asks the, the probing, challenging question. You, you get the idea that this is uh, as a compassionate, uh, caring father, right? Do you do right to be angry? You know, just uh, dealing with Jonah in a gentle way. Uh, Jonah does not answer. Uh, and he basically storms off in verses, uh, verse 5. Uh, again, they're all S's, so this is sullen Jonah. He is just sulking outside the city. And then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So Jonah is still hoping for the destruction to come upon the city. So he builds this booth. He's sitting in the shade. He got the idea. He's He preached the message of 40 days, so he's going to wait out that 40 days because he wants to see the destruction of this city. He's just waiting to see what God's going to use, if it's going to be you know, fire from heaven or he's going to send in some marauding army or whatever it is. Um, he's just waiting to see what God is going to do. But he, he knows what's going to happen because he already stated that he knew that God was going to act in mercy and compassion and with steadfast love. So he's just sitting there sulking, uh, waiting to see what's going to happen. And then next we have the, the, the sovereign lesson. So God is going to, in his, once again, in his mercy, his grace, his compassion, He's going to deal with Jonah kindly, and he's going to teach him a lesson. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to, sh- to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, and Jonah was exceedingly happy about the plant. So Jonah's sitting outside the city. He's waiting for it to be destroyed. It's kind of hot. He's uncomfortable. And God, in his compassion, gives him shade, has this tree 
or whatever shade tree, whatever it may be, pops up overnight, a miraculous thing, uh, so that he could be uh, shaded in his discomfort in the heat. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant and it withered. Again, God's sovereign hand, it's, you see God's sovereign hand throughout this whole book. He, he appoints or he, he hurls or he does all kinds of things just in his sovereignty. And in his sovereignty, he springs up this plant. He gives Jonah the shade. He gives Jonah comfort. And then he takes away that comfort the next day. And as you might anticipate, uh, based on what we've read about Jonah to this point, Jonah, Jonah is... Uh, angry. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying death is better to me than life. So again we have Jonah thinking that uh, that death is a better situation than his own personal comfort here. Again, we see God's we see God's compassion, and we see that Jonah is more concerned about um, his own comfort. He's in oppressive heat; it's awful, but he doesn't have the compassion toward the people that he's supposed to have, and he's concerned for himself. Then God send, said to Jonah, "Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant?" So God, again, dealing with him in, in a gentle way, asking the, the pointed question, uh, challenging his thinking. And Jonah's response is, I have good reason to be angry even to death. So again, uh, thinking that, that, that God's plans and that God's ways are not the good ways, that death would be a better alternative. And then the, the book ends with God's response. And again, I think this reflects back onto the fact that, that Jonah is the author. He leaves us with God's response because I think when he wrote this down, his thinking was correct. So he leaves us with God's final words to him because throughout the, the book, he wants us to have the focus on who God is. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? So we are left with that statement from God that God is compassionate. You see the compassion of God, right? It's 120,000 persons. It's not entirely known what that means. Uh, there's a couple of theories, and, and one of them that it's that it's children, that uh, young children, and that's that's where you get the the larger population of Nineveh. 
uh, it could be uneducated persons. There's, there's a number of different theories about what it means, but the, the point is that God has compassion. And we see that he even has, the, he even has compassion for the animals. He's like, and there, there's animals there too. You want me to destroy the, the whole thing? There's, there's children, there's animals. Uh, should I not have compassion? He leaves Jonah with, uh, Jonah closes with those words, and those are the last words that we read to Jonah, is God talks about his great compassion. So God proves his steadfast love to Jonah. And just a, a quick recap of, of all that he has done to prove this out to Jonah. We have the, the, the Almighty, he upheaves the sea. He directs the casting of the lots. He saves the pagan sailors. He delivers the disobedient prophet by means of a fish. He saves the sinful Ninevites. He appoints the shade tree. He appoints the worm. And he appoints the scorching wind all to get to the point where he demonstrates to Jonah his own hardness, uh, Jonah's hardness, that is, but that God is, is absolutely sovereign in his grace and mercy and steadfast love. And God has, or, uh, Jonah has missed out on the glory of God clearly demonstrated to him through all those things. And it ends just with that. It ends with that demonstration or that depiction or that, that highlight of the glory of God, that God is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he is the author of salvation. And I was thinking of it, it it's, you know, Jonah, Jonah missed it, and do we, do we miss it at times? And I just wanted to, to end with this, some words from Paul. Uh, God has clearly demonstrated to us his steadfast love. And Paul writes this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And just one final note, just to, to end, uh, quoting from the words of Jonah. Um, Thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So in the book of Jonah, we have this, this clear picture of the wonderful mercy, grace, steadfast love through, from God uh, shown just throughout all his sovereign, miraculous works. Uh, truly, God is, is worthy of all our, of our affections when you, when you read through this, when you think through these things.
All right, let's let's pray. Father, we uh, we thank you for your your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your the love demonstrated towards us. Lord, we are wildly unworthy of it, and yet, Lord, in your glory, um, you extend your, your love, mercy, and grace to us. We thank you that uh, salvation is from you. We pray that as, as we think on these things, as we think through the, the life of Jonah, that we would uh, grow in our love for you, uh, grow in our desire to know you more, uh, grow in our thankfulness, that we would be a thankful people as we understand that we basically uh, uh, swim in a sea of, of grace and mercy every day that you abundantly lavish upon us. Uh, we thank you for your goodness in all of this. We thank you for this uh, this account that we have gone through, Lord, that we can see uh, your great hand at work, Lord, to, to demonstrate your love. And we thank you for your demonstration of love in the Lord Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.